Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Are you glad it's finished? The work of love was completed in Christ. He's conquered the grave and all who call upon the name of the Lord and Jesus is the Lord will be saved, rescued, delivered from their sin. This, this morning, Acts 18 verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be. And it, I want to say to you, if you are sort of kicking the tires about Christianity, sort of testing, is Jesus real? I, I'm glad you're here. Um, we want you here. We don't want just people who already know the Lord and trust Him and are walking with Him. Uh, we are not perfect people, but we serve a perfect God. And He has completed, as we just sang, the work of love. He's done what is necessary for us to have a right relationship with God, which is what you were made for. So if you're here searching, if you're here on a quest, wondering what's up, what's going on, we praise God that you are here because the solution to your search is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And a man named Paul, who had been a a very faithful Jew, uh, he was a law keeper, discovers this. On a, on a walk to Damascus, he encounters the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his life is changed and we are stepping into, we're, we're partway through what we call the second missionary journey. And he's been in Athens and he shared the gospel in Athens and some people have believed and some people have been skeptics and some people wanted to know more. And, and Paul is winding down his ministry in Athens and he's, he's going to move to Corinth today. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, find Acts chapter 18, as we see Paul go to Corinth. Now, Corinth is going to be a challenging context for Paul, as we'll see in his letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And among the challenges that Paul is going to face in Corinth, one of them is Corinth itself, just the city and the culture of Corinth. Corinth was a, a new city. It had, it had been an ancient city, but it had been decimated and then rebuilt about a hundred years before Paul arrives there. So the buildings, relatively speaking, are new. He's, he's walking around a, a new city, if you will. Corinth is, is a cosmopolitan city. It's a happening city. It's a, it's a happening place, which, as Tony Morita summarizes, sat on the southern end of a narrow land bridge but about three and a half miles wide that connected the Peloponnese Peninsula with the mainland of Greece. There's actually two ports in Corinth, one on either side of the city, and there would be like a land bridge. Ships would land on one side. They'd get the stuff off and onto like a, a train, if you will, not a, not a motorized train, but some tracks, and then ship it over to the other port and then put it in the other port and off to Greece. So it's a hugely important city of, of strategic importance Marita continues, commercially it had location, location, location. There, north-south land routes intersected with east-west sea routes. The strategic location led the city to be the largest in Greece. Some scholars have estimated its population to be as high as three-quarter of a million people. Unfortunately, along with the city's commercial importance came rampant immorality. 
The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, stood at the city's center. And there, thousands of slave priestesses, you know how to translate that, right? Women of the nights. Thousands of slave priestesses walked about in search of worshipers. In Corinth, there seems to have been little to no shame in their immorality, along with great pride in their power, economic importance, and culture. They, they needed, as we need and as our city needs, they needed the gospel. And so, uh, would you bow with me before we dive into the text today? God in heaven, help us in the hearing of your word to behold Christ. God, for those of us who, who know you, who belong to you by faith, God, we pray uh, that you would guide us into the heart of God, uh, that you would chasten us where we need to be chastened, refine us where we need to be refined, and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Spirit of God, we, we ask that you would do with this message everything you would delight to do. Accomplish it in us. Find us available this morning, receptive to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 4 to begin as, as we see Paul going to Corinth. The, the word of the Lord says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The first thing I want you to see as Paul descends on Corinth is that God provides the people and the funds to do his will. Paul is riding solo. How is he going to, to make ends meet? Enter Priscilla and Aquila. In his, in his letters to the church at Corinth, Paul emphasizes his apparent inadequacies for his assignment in that city. In, sec, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says this, I was with you, referring to this time in Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul proclaimed the gospel, and by the time that he reaches Corinth, he has paid dearly for his service in the gospel, has he not? Let's, let's survey recent attractions. He was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He was the reason that Jason was dragged before the authorities and had to post bail in Thessalonica. And the Thessalonian Jews then came to Berea and ran him out of the city. In Athens, he had planned to wait for Timothy and Silas, but he was provoked, so provoked in his spirit by the idolatry that he encountered there that he, had, he quickly got to work announcing the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And though Luke doesn't mention it, we see in 1 Thessalonians 3 that at some point Timothy, most likely along with Silas as well, briefly connected with Paul in Athens, but then they had to return to Macedonia. So what this means is Paul is alone as he enters this strategic but debased city called Corinth. And y'all, Paul has been engaged in massive spiritual warfare throughout this missionary journey. He, he even struggles to get started. You remember, he walks around for almost 500 miles with his missionary team before the Spirit even says, hey, go over here to Macedonia. They try Asia, they try Bithynia, and the Spirit's like, nope, nope, nope. 
Like, can't even get started. So the whole trip has been for Paul, one fraught with spiritual warfare. And then of all the places that Paul might go next, verse 1, Paul went to Corinth. He goes there into this city of arrogance and idolatry and immorality with no one to share his burdens. And apparently no money. He's alone, he's broke, but he's not abandoned. And this is evidenced by what we read next. Verse 2, Paul finds a certain Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are are most likely already believers when when Paul meets them. Though Aquila was born in Pontus, at some point he had traveled to Italy and only recently come to Corinth with his wife Priscilla. They, They left Rome, they left Italy. Why? Because the emperor Claudius commanded, verse 2, commanded all the Jews to leave. And here's an interesting tidbit. We don't just know about this event from the New Testament. We know about it from world history. The event is not just recorded in Acts. It's also recorded by the ancient historian Suetonius. You say, well, why would you tell me that? Well, it's just, it's just a brief parenthesis to say this. Did you know God's word checks out? God's word, when it references real historical events time and again, they're like, oh, that didn't really happen. And then scholars find an artifact or a document. They're like, well, guess what? That did actually happen. You know why it actually happened? Because it it really happened. God's word checks out. Paul is a real missionary. He's not an invented missionary. The Bible's not a bunch of gobbledygook and and invented stories somewhere that fell out of the sky. These are real people, real events that really happen, and you have to deal with the facts of the case as presented in the New Testament. So if you're here today and you're like, well, I'm not sure what I think, please don't buy the world's argument that it's just another religion out there that's made up and invented. It's grounded in history that we can point to. Paul's a real missionary who really went to Corinth where he really encountered a real Christian couple who had really been persecuted for being Jewish. In other words, these were people who could identify with Paul because Paul knew a little bit about persecution. Priscilla and Aquila, by the way, these people that Paul meets, were an amazing gospel couple. Whenever they're mentioned, they're mentioned together. This team was, was like Paul, willing to go wherever the Lord desired. Marita summarizes Uh, what we read about them in the Bible. When they were forced to leave Rome, Aquila and his wife end up in Corinth. But later, they undertook another move to Ephesus with Paul, where the church met in their home. And then, they eventually returned to Rome, only eventually later to appear back in Ephesus in 2 Timothy 4.19. In other words, wherever God needed them to be in the mission of God, they would go. They didn't say, well, I can only stay in Roanoke, Virginia for the rest of my life. No, they said, wherever God leads, we're going to go. In other words, Paul gives some, gives, uh, excuse me, God gives to Paul some people who are a lot like Paul. Wherever God leads, whatever he wants, we're going to go. They were encouragers to Paul at just the right time, and God used this couple not just to encourage Paul, but also to provide a way for Paul to eat. Like Paul, Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers or, uh, Another possible translation, leather workers, and those who made tents had had to work with leather. And they welcomed Paul to join their business during his season in Corinth while he's working solo. In his epistles, Paul mentions to us several times that he supported himself, right? Acts 20, 34, 1 Corinthians 4, 12, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, 2 Thessalonians 3. We, We read about Paul supporting himself, but we don't know how he supports himself other than from this text, Paul is a tent maker. 
he worked hard with his hands. Now we know that Paul encourages churches to provide financial support for their pastors and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, but he does not define his ministry, listen to this, Paul does not define his ministry by the source or the size of his funding or the official number of hours that he devotes to the task. I want to say that again. Paul does not define his ministry by the source or the size of his funding or the official number of hours he devotes to the task. If he's got to make tents to be a missionary, he'll make tents to be a missionary. When I was growing up, and maybe you've heard this as well, sometimes I heard people ask me if I was called to full-time ministry. Are you called to full-time ministry? I suspect the better question is, are you called to ministry? There's, a, there's an implication to that question that, quite frankly, just doesn't align well with the Bible. And here's the implication. The implication is that real ministry is restricted to those who have a full-time ministry position. But Paul is no less of a missionary when he's supporting himself than when he's supported by the churches that he had planted. God calls people to mission and ministry and he provides the funds needed to live and do his will and he does it in different ways in differing seasons. Listen well, without in any way diminishing his call to serve him for the sake of the upbuilding of his church. So Paul, what did he do? He worked on tents. Worked on tents during the week, sharing the gospel as he could. And every Sabbath he was conversing in the synagogue, persuading Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Messiah. Now in the translation we read, it says trying to persuade, as though Paul was not successful. That's uh, an interpretation that's unfortunate. That's that's not the sense of the, the verb. It's just that he was ongoingly persuading Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Messiah. The more he spoke, the more people heard, the more people believed. Believed. If God is calling you, and in a room this size, there's got to be someone that God is probably dealing with. If God is calling you to serve Him, I want to encourage you to be like Paul. Don't get wrapped up in the funding formula to start serving Jesus. Does that make sense? Well, until it's full time, I can't serve Jesus. No. Don't get wrapped up in the funding formula. Just be like Paul. Get busy being faithful. Understand that ministry is more a call call to preparation and proclamation than it is a call to compensation. And then leave the rest in God's capable hands. And in Paul's case, support for his ministry is on the way, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 5, down through verse 8. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In other words, the anointed king promised to rule over God's people in the Old Testament is Jesus. And when they had opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
The second thing I want us to see as we consider these lessons in ministry from Corinth is that God uses the strategic support of missionaries to advance his mission in the world. God uses strategic support of missionaries to advance his mission in the world. When, while Paul is no more and no less a missionary when he's making tents than when his ministry is funded by the church, funding does make a difference. The, the meaning of verse 5 is captured well in the, is not captured well, rather, in the version that we read. Here's the point of verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, Paul then occupies himself entirely with the ministry of the Word. His gospel compadres show up, Timothy and Silas show up, and they show up with some cash. And he goes from tent making and gospel proclamation to just a life consumed with proclaiming Jesus because he doesn't have to worry about how he's going to eat. Uh, Part of the reason for the expansion of Paul's efforts is likely not just the finances, right? It's probably also the encouragement that came from seeing Silas and Timothy. We know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that they brought encouragement about the church in Thessalonica that he had planted and then had to leave. We read also, however, that he got financial support. And you know, encouragement is nice, but it doesn't really feed you very well. Hey, good job. Yeah, I'm still hungry. So they bring money. They bring some financial support. And the reason you say, well, I don't see that here in the text of Acts. Luke doesn't mention it, but Paul refers to it in his other letters. Philippians chapter 4. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says to the church at Corinth, when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. In other words, I made tents for as long as I needed to. And then he says what? For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. We we need this reminder, church. While it is true that God's not going to call everyone to be a Paul, and while it's true that relatively few are called to vocational ministry, We can all contribute to the mission of God. Every single person in this room, if you know God, if God has changed your life, you are called to be a part of God's mission in the world. You say, well, how can I contribute? You can contribute like Timothy and Silas. You can show up for a season in somebody's life and be an encourager. I tell you, in in vocational ministry, encouragement is so important. And some of you do that so well. You'll send a text, you'll send me an email, you let me know you're praying for me, you'll make a comment. I can say, based on personal experience and conversations with many pastors, encouragement is vital to the work of ministry. Some of you can contribute your physical presence and encouragement. Another thing you can contribute is your financial support. And you can see God multiply your support in His mission. Marita is again helpful here. He says, you may not be a skilled Bible teacher, but if you can financially support the ministry of the word, then you're playing a vital role in making sure that the gospel is shared. 
You may be so consumed at home right now that you cannot help in the children's ministry. But if you are discipling your own children around the breakfast table, you are playing a vital role in spreading the gospel. And then listen to this sentence. It takes the whole body of Christ to get the gospel to the whole world. No one in here who names the name of Jesus doesn't have a role in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Paul is is encouraged by their presence. He receives financial support and he goes all in on this gospel work. And guess what happens as soon as Paul is able to leave tent making and start dropping the gospel everywhere he goes? What happens? Same thing that happens in every other city. He faces opposition. You thought I was going to say, man, lots of people came to know Jesus and everything was great. Of course not. He's opposed. While he's making tents, he was probably irritating some Jews along the way. But now that he's testifying all the time, the Jews who aren't too happy about it oppose him all the more. Verse 6, do you see it? They were opposing him. The word opposing implies some hostility. They were hostile toward him and they were reviling him. But this word reviling is, is the word blaspheming and, and In pretty much every other context in the Bible, it doesn't refer to speaking ill of other humans, but to speaking ill of God. So likely, they're they're blaspheming God. They're rejecting God's testimony about His Son that Paul is giving, and thereby blaspheming God. You say, well, how is that? If If I speak ill of Jesus, am I blaspheming God? Yes. Because you know who the Father is very excited about? His Son. He sent His Son to save the world that we might glory in His Son, that we might delight in His Son and give Him the glory that He is due. We don't have a man upstairs kind of faith, church. We we have a faith that is all about King Jesus, the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh to take our place, who alone is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And when these Jews reject Jesus, what does Paul do? He shakes out his garment, much like the apostles shook the dust off their feet when people rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then he uses the image of the watchman, which the Jews would have known well, from Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. And in Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6, we learn about the responsibilities of a watchman to warn of an impending attack. The watchman watches over the city and he stands on the wall and he looks out to see if an attack is coming. And if he fails to recognize an impending attack and to warn people of the death that awaits if they don't escape, then their blood is on his hands. But if the watchman is faithful to warn, Ezekiel 33.6 says that he will be innocent or clean. In other words, those who fail to heed the warnings of the watchmen are responsible for stubbornly rejecting the message. You say, well, what's the attack? What's the analogy? The the attack is the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out against all who will not trust in His Son, Jesus. And Paul says, look, I've been faithful. I've announced the warning. I've announced your responsibility for repenting of your sin and following Christ the King. I am innocent now of lives that will forever perish because they refuse to heed the warning in the gospel and to be delivered from the wrath of God to come. I'm clean. I'm innocent. I tried. 
those who continue to reject Jesus, your blood will not be on my hands. It will be on your own. Paul has tried and he's been rejected. And so now what does he say he's going to do? I'm going to the Gentiles. I've I've done what I can do in the synagogue and I'm going to the Gentiles. And as we see in verse 8, Paul doesn't have to go far, does he? This is amazing to me. He's, He's dealing with hostility. He's dealing with people who are picking at him and even threatening him. And where does he go? He sets up shop at the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile God-fearer, whom Paul had apparently led to Christ. And where is his house? Literally, the text says, it was sharing a boundary with the synagogue. This, This is amazing to me. I mean, I had forgotten the biblical name, Titius Justice. All right, that's not a name that rolls off my lips like, hey, what are you going to name your son? That's, that's not one that pops in my head. But this dude, this dude is bold, right? He was a God-fearer. He had probably been going to the synagogue. He heard Paul in the synagogue, and, and he gets saved, and he's like, hey, man, no more gospel proclamation in the synagogue because these guys are sick of it. Hey, hey, Paul, I got an idea. Let's go to my house since you know it's right there. And Paul's like, okay. And and get this, there's a dividing line between the synagogue where people thought they were the people of God and a Gentile sinner's house who had no hope of belonging to the people of God except for Jesus. And where is the side of truth? The boundary line between this Gentile's house and a Jewish synagogue, and where's the side of truth? It's not in the synagogue where they have the scriptures and they have the traditions and they have everything else. It's in the heart of a broken-hearted sinner who says, unless Jesus came and saved me, I would have nothing. And he's, that's where the gospel goes forward, this broken sinner's house. This is a picture of taking up our cross to follow Jesus. And, and what happens when, when you... When you are faithful under fire and you say, look, I don't care if there's opposition to the gospel here. I'm going to take a stand for the gospel here. What happens is is people take notice. And who takes notice? In verse 8, Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue who breaks rank with the Jewish opposition to follow Jesus. And his his household follows him. But as we're going to see next week, his former friends and colleagues from the synagogue do not. Crispus takes up his cross and follows Jesus. You say, what do you mean he takes up his cross? To take up your cross is to lay something down to follow King Jesus. What does he lay down? He lays down his position. He was the ruler of the synagogue. And he crosses the boundary line to go to a Gentile's house and be a part of the people of God through the gospel. He lays down his status. He lays down his significance among men to be rescued by Jesus. Church, when people, listen to this, when people lay down their earthly treasures to treasure Jesus, people take notice. You want want people to know that Jesus is real in your life? Lay something down for the sake of following Jesus and watch people pay attention. The, The challenge with the church is we live our lives just like the world, and the world is like, you got Jesus, well, what difference does he make in your life? You want all the same things I want. you got to have all the same things that I have. So did he really make a difference? You lay something down to follow Jesus and people take notice. You say, well, where do you see that in the text? Verse 8, 
what happens when Crispus comes to saving faith in Christ. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the grand poopah, the guy that everybody knows about. Man, you want to know, you want to be close to God, go to Crispus. And what does Crispus do? He lays it all down, goes to the Gentile's house next door and says, this is my family. And what happens in verse 8? Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. We've seen this before, right? Paul is opposed by the Jews. He goes to the Gentiles. Jewish jealousy leads to persecution and he has to leave. This is what's going to happen next, right? The, the gospel is going to take hold in Corinth. Some Jews have believed. Some Gentiles have believed. And now Paul's going to be forced to check out of the city. It's just rewind the tape. It happens again and again and again and again. And we could understand if in Paul's life a sense of dread begins to come over him. Because There he is once more. He's going to have to head out of town. Timothy and Silas show up. He's opposed. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. And once more, I got to go solo. I got to leave. And I got to wait on more people. We could understand if Paul began to face discouragement in spite of the great progress of the gospel in Corinth. Always starting churches, but never getting to stay and see the fruit. We, we can't know for sure what goes on between verse 8 and, and verse 9, but Marita says this, Paul seems ready to quit at this point. Even after great fruitfulness. Given his previous trials in general and his trials in Corinth in particular, maybe Paul was experiencing what we would call in modern vernacular burnout. Whatever was happening with Paul, He needed encouragement to continue in his calling. Verse 9, down through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What we see in verses 9 through 11 is this truth. So we consider lessons for ministry. And it's, it's this. And there might be someone in this room that God would call to ministry even today. That he might impress upon your heart. I, I have a call upon your life to, to learn God's word and proclaim God's word and build his church. There will be seasons of discouragement. But here's what you need to see and to be heartened by. God provides what we need to continue in, in his calling during seasons of fear and discouragement. That's true for ministers of the gospel, it's true for pastors, and it's true for everyday church members that God uses. God provides what we need to continue in His calling during seasons of fear and discouragement. In verse 9, the Lord Jesus speaks to Paul one night in a vision. This is not a dream, but a vision. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, it probably means Paul wasn't sleeping Perhaps he couldn't sleep because the weight of the work and travel was crashing down upon him. But in that moment, Jesus comes in a vision in verse 9. And what does he say? Literally, stop fearing, go on speaking, and do not become silent. The king who commissioned Paul 
on the road to Damascus has more for Paul to do. And Jesus gives these three short commands. They are commands, however, filled with such love. What, what do we need? What do we need to know most when we're discouraged in life? Is it not the presence of our King? Is it not a reminder that He's not yet done with us? How refreshing to hear from His Commander-in-Chief, do not fear. Hughes summarizes what's going on in this way. The fact that God made the effort to encourage Paul not to fear meant that God loved and cared for him. This assurance ministered to Paul's heart, just as 1 Paul 4.18 teaches, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Time and again, the scriptures tell us to fear not, to stop worrying about tomorrow, to stop borrowing trouble, because we are divinely loved, and listen up church, God's love is enough. God's love is enough. Jesus commands Paul not only to not fear, but to go on speaking and not become silent. Why would he have to tell Paul to keep speaking and not become silent? Because Paul was tempted to stop, to stop speaking and to become silent. Paul was tempted to become silent. Wrap your mind around that. Does it make you feel a little better <laughs> about the times that you've been fearful or wanted to give up, Paul was, was tempted to quit. And I can speak from personal experience. When fear creeps into the soul, my natural tendency is to stand down. My natural tendency is to be quiet, to withdraw. It's often the case that we think of missionaries like Paul as, as super Christians or super spiritual, but ministry church is constant warfare. And when it brings seasons of fear and exhaustion and doubt and discouragement, sometimes you can't even pinpoint why it's going on in your heart. Is it me? Is it my constant critic? Is it the lack of rest? Is it the constant barrage of responsibility? Is it worry about the what ifs? What's going on in my soul, God? I, I don't know. And in those moments, Moments. Praise God. We have a king, and the king who calls to mission and ministry does not abandon his people at just the right time. He says, Do not be afraid. Keep going, keep working, keep proclaiming and applying the gospel. And why do we do it? Praise God. Verse 10, do you see it? Because the king who calls us is the king who goes with us. Do not fear and keep on speaking, not because you're the best speaker, not because you need an impressive, an impressive ministry resume, not because you are the only one who could do the job. No, keep on doing what you're doing because Jesus will stick with you all the way. Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, and he will go with us even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. And in Paul's case, the Lord promises, verse 10, that though he may face attack in Corinth, he will not be harmed. The Lord Jesus wants Paul to stay. The Lord Jesus wants Paul to be confident. The Lord Jesus wants Paul to be assured of his protection. And the Lord Jesus wants Paul to speak the gospel in Corinth. Why? 
Why? Do you see it? Many people in this city are mine. Many in this city are Jesus' people. The Lord knows how many Gentiles have been appointed to eternal life. He knows how many will believe on Him. And Paul's job is what? What is Paul's job then? If God is sovereign, if God is good, if He's going to draw people to salvation through the proclamation of the gospel, then what is Paul to do? He's to not fear and he's to speak. His job is to simply obey and proclaim the gospel and watch God work. Are are y'all still here? Because... That's not just true for people who are in vocational ministry. You know what your job is? You say, well, I, what did I get out of this sermon? What am I supposed to go home and do? Some of y'all are discouraged this morning. Some of y'all are fearful this morning. Some of you are coming from a place of brokenness, brokenness this morning. And when we sang, it is finished, you said, I know that's true in eternity, but I don't feel like it's finished in my soul. But it is, if you're in Christ, it is. And what is your job? Your job is to obey Jesus, share the gospel, and watch God work. That's it. That's the application. That same principle applies to everyone in this room, whether you're called to be a missionary, whether you're called to be a pastor, or whether you're just called to be a mom. That's all we need to do, church. Obey the king and watch him work. We, can't let di- we cannot let fear and doubt and discouragement or even the hurt that sometimes comes our way prevent us from hearing our King today and always. And as clearly as King Jesus speaks to Paul, He now speaks to you. You say, well, I need a vision. God, show me a revelation. Speak to me. He is. He gave you His Word. This is the Spirit-authored, inspired Word of God. As clear as Paul heard from Jesus 2,000 years ago, you are hearing from Jesus right now, not because I'm speaking it, but on the authority of God's Word. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't become silent. I am with you. So says King Jesus. Don't quit. Don't let this culture, don't let the thoughts in your own mind Don't let anything rob you from what Jesus has said to his people. I am with you. If God is calling you this morning to be a missionary, step out with confidence that Jesus goes with you. If he's calling you to be a pastor or to to serve in his church in some other way, step out knowing that God will be with you. Be encouraged by this text. It may be tough. Actually, I'm going to correct that. It will be tough. But King Jesus will be with you every step of the way. Paul emerges from the vision and encouraged man. He doesn't give in to fear. He doesn't become silent. He stays in Corinth for a year and a half. And what does he do? He teaches the word of God among them. Paul was able to stay and teach the church to obey all Christ had commanded because that is what Jesus asked him to do. Perhaps this morning there are some who've been functioning in fear and in discouragement, and today you've heard, like Paul from King Jesus, don't be afraid, don't quit, stick with it. If God is calling you to ministry this morning, I want to invite you to come, I want to talk to you more about that. If you don't know King Jesus and know His presence, this one who speaks to you from His word, a word of encouragement in the midst of your darkest despair, come and trust Him. There is no Savior like Jesus. I want to invite our worship team to come, and as they do,
I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these lessons in ministry from Corinth. God, we thank you that even Paul, even Paul needed a fresh work of God in his life. Even Paul faced seasons of fear and timidity. But God, you didn't leave him there. You, you spoke a word of encouragement at the right moment. And you used him to plant a church in one of the most dark cities that existed on the planet in that day. God, you changed hearts through Paul. And God, I, I pray that you would change hearts through the people in this room. God, that you would find us faithful, that we would obey, that we would proclaim, and then we would watch you work in our city and among the nations for the glory of Christ, for he is worthy of it. Lord, I, I don't know what you would delight to do in this room today, but I pray it's not finished. And I pray if anyone needs to come for any reason, whether to trust Christ, to join a church, or to surrender to your call to ministry, God, that you would give liberty in this place to respond as you lead. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.